Pod Academy listeners. You're listening to an interview with the author Will Atkinson that I recorded with him at the very end of last year, just before Christmas. So you'll pick up some Christmas references in the other part of the introduction. Anyway, uh, it was a really interesting discussion and discussions about class and such issues are completely timeless. So I hope you enjoy listening to what he had to say. You are listening to Ideas Books. My name's Craig Barfoot. Ideas Books is a weekly show talking to great thinkers about their books which help us to understand and make sense of our world. This is going to be the last episode for the year, and I am very thankful to iTunes this week for selecting this show, Ideas Books, as part of the best new podcasts of 2015. That's uh, that's really cool. Thanks. I will be back interviewing authors again late January, and if you want to keep in touch and get updates, then please go to our website, ideasbooks.org, and subscribe to the mailing list. And... For today's interview, I guess I guess I should have picked some sort of end-of-year, Christmassy, holiday celebration theme, like most other shows. But uh, I was more fascinated this week about the class system, which I, I guess for you is an insight into how my mind works. Because in the media, we constantly are hearing terms like lower class, middle class, working class. But what does all that really mean? I mean, are we getting more or less class divided as people? And I mean, how much social mobility do we do we really have? So today I'm talking to a lecturer in social research, Dr. Will Atkinson, who's written a book called simply Class. Will, thanks, man. Thanks for, for taking out time to have a chat with me today. No problem. Um, I, I guess, okay, I'm speaking to someone who's written a book on class, and so I, I, I can probably predict what the answer will be to this. But, I mean, is the general concept of class still applicable today? Absolutely. You know, I, I think there was for a time uh, a movement within politics, within social science, to say that class was no longer as important as it once was, that class was a declining force in Western societies at least, um, because we're so much more affluent now, uh, there is so much more choice over what we can do, so much more social mobility, uh, you know, university education is uh, so much more available now that really class divides don't matter anymore. Um, but actually, Stubbornly, research tends to show that's not the case. Class is still as important as it ever was. It's just that the ways in which it works, the the dividing lines for the different inequalities have moved. So now it's not so much about, well, who goes to university and who doesn't. It's about, well, which university do you go to? Which degree do you study for? And so on. So the, the goalposts move, if you like, but there's still always difference, still always a site of difference, which becomes uh, a site of inequality in the end. And so how appropriate are terms like uh, lower class or working class or upper class? I mean, are these still terms that are used by sociologists? And I mean, what are the, the categories these days of this class division? So this is something which is actually in flux a little bit at the moment. 
There is an official definition of class, which is the definition that the UK government and the EU like to use. And then there are the definitions of class in sociology, which are a little bit different. Now, the official definitions of, uh, you know, of classes, the official categorization of classes, uh, distinguishes a working class and an intermediate class. And then at the top, there is what's referred to as the service class, for one reason or another. That's the, the label that's uh, given to it. It's called the service class. So we don't really have an upper class as such, according to this official measure of class. The top class in society, which is comprised of managers, professionals in all kinds of different uh, areas and so on, uh, that, they're the service class. They're the service because they serve the rest of us <laughs> with their with their with their money and luxury. They serve us all. <laughs> but apart from the the political official measure of class, what what does actual academics? I mean, what does your field? How does your field break down class divisions? Recently, there's been a move to redefine class within the UK, um, and drawing on the idea that class is defined by education, money, social contacts, these kinds of things, there's been an effort to try to break down the class system into a number of classes and see uh, how that's changed from the past. So there was a, a massive piece of research done recently, which was actually commissioned by the uh, BBC, uh, who decided that they wanted to have a say on how class had changed in the UK and how it was different from the, the past. Uh, that this research found actually there were seven classes in society. And so they judged that uh, there was an elite at the top. There was what they called the precariat at the bottom, which is made up of people who are in unstable, insecure kinds of work, casualized contracts, maybe part-time, temporary jobs, that kind of thing. Um, and then in between, you have all kinds of, you have an established middle class, you have a more technical middle class working in, you know, engineering and technical op occupations, obviously. And then you have uh, uh, affluent workers, a traditional working class who are, you know, on the decline. And then you have uh, an, uh, a class that they called the emergent service workers, which are people who work in the service industries usually. Um, and the reasons they've cut up the class system this way, why they've said there's seven, is because they say there are seven distinct clusters who, which have different amounts and different balances of uh, these different resources, of education, of money, of social contact. So some of those categories have uh, a lot of uh, education, you know, they're very highly educated, for example, but they're not especially well paid. Whereas on the other hand, you have like the affluent workers who are well paid, but they're not especially well educated. They don't have a lot of, uh, you know, powerful social contacts and that kind of thing. The elite at the top obviously have, you know, lots of everything. The precariat at the bottom have uh, very little of anything. Uh, and those in the middle have kind of combinations of them in, to different degrees. Now, uh, that research is, is controversial, but uh, go on, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I was just to, just to define that because was, was that a purely BBC thing or that also reflects your work and studies as well? So this isn't my... Uh, this isn't my take on things. This is the probably the most famous piece of research to be done on the shape of the class structure today. Right. Uh, but does, it, does my, your field generally accept those findings? The prevailing view now, the view of what class is, which has become 
central to social scientific understandings of class at least is actually um, an idea which is associated with a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu and this is the idea that actually class is defined in terms of um, what he called misrecognition which is really all about the fact that you know there are certain properties characteristics of people which are defined as being worthy or not worthy in a society They're defined as being valuable or not valuable so for example having a, a good education higher education is defined as something which makes you a, a valuable worthy person it's not inherently valuable there's actually nothing intrinsically valuable about that but in our society it's become valued it's become defined as worthy and that means that those who don't have education, who don't have higher education, are defined as less worthy, are seen as uh, in some way inferior. And of course, there's all different ways in which they're described and you know put down in society, seen as thick or stupid, and and so on. Uh, and so this is the way, the abstract way in which we think about class these days. It's certainly the way in which I think it's fruitful to think about class, about you know the different properties, the different characteristics which are seen as valuable in a society and over which people struggle. Um, and so education is one of them. Money is one of them too, uh, as well as, you know, association with certain kind of names and, and clubs and membership of certain uh, clubs and things like that. Uh, these uh, forms of, uh, you know, these, these, well, let me kind of uh, put this a bit uh, more clearly. Education, money, uh, social contacts all form uh, what is increasingly called capitals. They're all types of capital which we struggle for, which we try to maximise, and the more we have of it, the more worthy we seem to be in the eyes of other people. How, um, I guess, the way that the word class is used by politicians in the media... Um, in relation to the way that that you guys in academia are, are looking at it, I mean, for example, like when we when we hear uh, in things like the erosion of the middle class, I mean, is that just a a blah blah thing, or, or does it actually mean something in a serious sociological area of investigation? Recently, there was a whole idea of there being this squeezed middle as a result of uh, the uh, coalition government bringing in all kinds of cuts to uh, welfare and so on, and. As a sociologist, we usually see them, uh, this kind of talk of class as all kinds of strategies for getting your political viewpoint across, of uh, trying to seem like you're the, a real, um, you know, you've got a real handle on people's experience and so on. But actually, it usually corresponds very, very weakly to what's actually going on in the world. For, for the start, Using notions of middle and working class and upper class too uh, is, is it's too simplistic from a sociological point of view because we also distinguish within classes to look at all the different kinds of struggles that go on. Um, so we do we do tend to treat political talk of class with great caution. Uh, there was a, a whole um, debate recently about social mobility. And how that had been on the decline in uh, Britain, particularly, though other countries too. And uh, you know, this was something which the politicians got all excited about and wanted to say needed to be addressed and so on. But actually, within the sociological research, within academic research, this is a very 
you know contentious it's a complex argument it's something which has a has a, a, you know a lot of uh, disagreement attached to it all of course depending on how you define class and therefore how you define moving from one class to another um, but it's not as straightforward as the politicians like to make out Okay. Then in terms of social mobility, is there a consensus today between academics as to how socially mobile we are? The consensus tends to be that social mobility has plateaued, not necessarily declined, but that it's reached, uh, uh, it's evened off. And there was, after the Second World War, a period where social mobility really took off because there was a great expansion of uh, jobs uh, which were in the uh, top or the upper classes of society, if you like, the sort of managerial positions, white-collar jobs, um, professional occupations. These all expanded. There was more of these around, so it meant that people could be more mobile. But in more recent years, in the last 20, 30 years, especially since the changes from the 1980s when um, a lot of jobs started to disappear amongst the uh, the working class um social mobility really started to plateau it really started to level out um certainly a lot of research has shown that uh, you know access to the the top professions of law and and medicine and so on that's still pretty much as closed as it you know as uh, <laughs> as ever basically um, so the consensus is that there was a period of social mobility uh, after the Second World War, but this has now started to tail off and leave a much more rigid society. And in, in in your mind, does does education today? I mean, does that does that kind of help to free us from class distinctions, or is education reinforcing them? Education is probably one of the key. Uh, processes, systems through which class inequalities are, are reproduced. Uh, it used to be that it was mainly about money. It was mainly about inheriting money. But nowadays the education system is implicated in uh, reproducing disadvantage because those who succeed in the education system tend to come from backgrounds which are, you know, ones which have themselves succeeded in education. And that's because, you know, you, there's a, so much research out there which shows that the middle classes, for want of a better word, have uh, all the resources open to them to make sure that their kids do get on in school. Uh, not only paying for extra tuition and all that kind of stuff, but they know how the system works in a way that other parents don't. So they, they know how to help with homework. They know how to talk to the teachers. They know how to get extra help if they need to, how to look for the best schools for their children. So they have all of these opportunities, all these advantages, which others don't, which means that they can ensure that their kids get on. And of course, education is increasingly important in making sure people get good jobs these days. Um, and so, you know, the the better you do in education, the more likely you are to end up in a, a good job. So it is those who, you know, whose parents were in good jobs who are ending up in the good jobs themselves these days. I'm interested to hear your ideas on the differences between countries. I mean, when we speak of class in uh, Western developed countries, are there differences between like the UK or the US or Norway and Australia? Generally, no. 
No, there are very clear similarities between all Western, capitalist, industrialized, democratic countries. However, the way in which people understand class in those countries is very different. So, for example, in Britain, we have a very long tradition of talking about class, so there's an idea that class is more prominent here than anywhere else in the world. But that's, that's because class has been something we've been interested in studying and uh, you know, getting a hold of for a long time. Um, it's also because of the particularly industrial history of Britain. You know, the, the rise of the Industrial Revolution and capitalism really happened here first. So it is something that plays on our minds. It's in our history a lot more than it is in, uh, in other nations. In the US, in Australia, there is more of a sense, more of a self-perception that actually class isn't that important. That actually class is... Uh, you know, it's not as important, for example, in the US as race in terms of, you know, setting out uh, in terms of shaping how people are going to do in life in terms of the advantages and disadvantages and experiences that they're going to face. But actually, it just happens that in the US that the class system is very heavily entwined with race. But it's still a class system. It's still a, a structure of inequality on the basis of uh, economic resources, uh, education, social uh, contacts, and so on. So it's the same thing. And in, and in Australia, too, there's this sense that, oh, yeah, you know, we, we don't really have class down here. It's not, you know, we're not like you Brits. A lot of this is maybe a kind of, you know, trying to break away from the, the, the colonial, the former colonial master, I suppose, trying to say, oh, we're not. And of course, that's, kind of, that's quite explicit in, in the uh, US case. You know, they really fought to, uh, to identify themselves against the old class system of Britain with its aristocracy and so on. They were to be a nation of individuals who could make their own way, who had uh, full, uh, you know, equality of opportunity and so on. And maybe it's similar in the, the, uh, in the Antipodes in Australia. Of course, it's, uh, it's not written into a constitution like it is in the US. But there's still a sense in which oh, we're with a new world, we've broken away from the old world, which was, you know, characterised by class uh, very much. But in Australia, there's loads of research on Australia which shows you know, vast differences in access to education, in uh, access to uh, uh, housing, in uh, differences in lifestyles, difference in political views. Uh, and also, of course, there are on the ground, when you talk to people, very clear uh, ways in which people talk about the different classes, even though they don't use the word class. You know, what's the, what's the uh, you might know better than me this, actually, that the word is the cashed up bogan or something like that in yes, Australia. Yes, yeah, the, the Australian word uh, for, I guess, what in the UK you'd call a chav uh, is, yes. is a bogan. Yep. And I guess the American would be, would be a redneck. Redneck or trailer trash. Absolutely. You know, and, and so you can see in Britain, it's the same that even though people don't necessarily talk in everyday conversation about class, about, you know, putting themselves in a class or whatever, they still use labels, they still use words to get at the same divisions. So chav in Britain is is probably the most obvious example. But like you say, you know, bogan in Australia, trailer trash, redneck in America, in the US, they, they have their equivalents elsewhere, ways in which people try to make sense of difference without necessarily using the same language as academics. And so when we're speaking of class, then is that also appropriate in countries like China or, or India or um, in Nepal? <laughs> <laughs> 
It depends on your definition of class. Certainly with uh, a society like India, which is obviously fairly capitalist in much of its economic structure, those who take the view that class is really defined in relation to a capitalist economic system are going to say that you're going to have uh, you know emerging classes of the kind we have in in the west there but if you have a broader definition of class which is really about just broad um, fractures of power of uh differences in the degree to which people are seen as worthy or valuable in a society then of course you you have that in China as much as you have it in Britain you have it in um, India you have it in uh, African countries as much as you have it in um, you know North America Europe or wherever it's just it's defined in a different way there are different properties there are different characteristics which act as the source of power. So in China, for example, the major source of power is party connections, um, your connections to the, the party machine, as well as, to a degree, education. It does also play a role as well, and increasingly money. The, uh, the uh, buzzwords in relation to China have been around the emerging middle classes, the new middle classes, which are arising there as China becomes a more affluent country, and uh, you know they start to people start to consume in the ways which we recognise in the West, buying the fancy cars and all of that kind of thing, wanting the consumer, the the, the household goods, and uh, and all the rest of it. Um, but if you have a broad definition of power, uh, sorry, if you have a broad definition of class. Uh, in terms of the major fractures of power in a society, the major fractures of what makes one uh, seen as a valuable person, then you can see class everywhere in any society. Well, this is, I, I guess, I mean, approaching your book and in this conversation, I mean, I, I come, you know, I, I come from definitely outside your field and, and haven't really studied or looked at anything before. And so for me, approaching this, I, I I just got to see it as a as a hierarchy. I mean, like I get that there are limited resources in the world that we all want. I mean, we all can't have, I don't know, the house on the beach or, or a supermodel partner. So we find a way to sort of divide society into a hierarchy to sort out who gets what. But definitions of middle class, lower class, upper class, or even dividing classes into seven classes, it still seems like very broad brushstrokes to, to really categorize people. Is there yeah. is there another competing system that's more... I don't know, <laughs> That's, that has different divisions or many divisions or a different way of looking at it? Well, there are those who prefer to see society as one great big scale. So you have a scale of, uh, you know, um, money or status or whatever, and people can be uh, placed on there, and there are no meaningful boundaries. There are no meaningful cutoff points where you can say, well, here's where one class starts and another class ends. That's not actually that popular anymore in, in social science, in sociology. It was for a while in the post-war period. But then later developments in class research said that uh, actually it's quite important to really pull out that people who might be at slightly different points on the scale, generally their experience is similar enough to be taken together and to be drawn together into a class. And actually, that that's the beauty of class research, and indeed, social science in general. It looks for ways in which we can reduce the 
intricate, complex mesh of society down to categories, types, and so on, looking for the similarities. Look for the major differences, but not every difference. And then you'll start to get a clearer view on how the details start to work. Once you start to see them as you know, examples of big categories in action, in concrete uh, action. Your field sounds like it's undergoing quite a change from this traditional Marxist way of thinking uh, about class into this this newer, more, you know, not just defining class as money, but defining class as your position in society. Is that is that a fair summary of, of this transition? That is an absolutely a fair summary, yeah. Class analysis, class research has been going through a revolution for the past 10 or 20 years. I, well, past 20 years, definitely, away from the older views of class in terms of not simply money, but economics in terms of, um, well, you know, there are some versions of uh, class associated with Marxism, which see it all about your ownership of property or not. Uh, and there are some versions of class research, which saw class in terms of, well, how much money do you have because of your pay, how stable is your pay and so on. And then there is the newer uh, branch of class research, the newer wave of class research, which does see our class position, our position in society as multidimensional, as multifaceted, as a product of, yes, economic resources, but also education, social connections, and so on. And so you have to bring all of those factors in to really understand the way people tick and the struggles and the fractures, the main dividing lines within society. From uh, all of, from your research uh, and understanding of this topic, I mean, what changes could be made? What changes would you make to introduce a less class stratif uh, stratified system? That is the million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, it's something which has confused and confounded sociologists, politicians, philosophers for centuries. And, you know, there are different views on what we can do. Um, the traditional view, of course, is that if you move towards a communist or a socialist society, you're going to get fewer class distinctions. I don't think that's going to get rid of class distinctions altogether. Um, it will get rid of class distinctions based purely on money. If you believe that class is defined purely in terms of money, then obviously that's one way in which you're going to get around some of that. But if you have a broader view of class that actually does bring in education and uh, your social connections, then you see that actually a social society isn't necessarily a society free of classes. We see, we've seen that historically with Eastern Europe, with um, China and so on before it started to go through its uh, recent economic transformations, of course. But, uh, you know, even there, there were divisions of class just based on your connections, on your education, even if money was, you know, was actually officially outlawed as a form of uh, inequality. So it's a difficult question. It's not one which can be easily answered. Um, I think that if you have the view that class is about uh, struggles and differences in terms of defining what makes someone a worthy person or a valuable person in society and that all kinds of things can be uh, yoked to that 
to say someone's worthy because they're rich or because they're highly educated or whatever, then you have to work on obviously redistributing the things which are defined as worthy, but at the same time, I guess, trying to fight against the whole game of defining some things as worthy and some things as unworthy. So it's a, a twin-track approach, I suppose, but I don't necessarily think I have all the answers yet anyway. Will, thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for this conversation, and, and thanks going through your book and, and the conversation today has yeah, helped me just kind of shed some light on understanding this topic. So thanks for taking out some time from your day to uh, to have a chat no problem it's been a pleasure you have been listening to dr will atkinson talking about his book class will is a lecturer in social research at the university of bristol and if you're interested in getting a copy of his book you can find it by clicking on the link at our website ideasbooks.org I also want to say thanks to those of you who've been listening for the last few months since I started this project. And it's cool, I've been, I've been watching your numbers grow each week, and I'm really happy that people are enjoying these interviews. But it's also kind of strange just to see numbers on a screen that represent you. I mean, whoever you are listening to this right now. In fact, that, that's a fact that's been intriguing me for the last month. Who are you? So, if you've got a couple of minutes, Open your email and send me a message. And I don't necessarily mean send me a message about this show. I mean more just send me a message. I mean, you can just say hi or, or tell me who you are. or I don't, You can ask me a question if you want. Or send me some ridiculous picture of your cat dressed as a chimney sweep. The email address is info at ideasbooks.org. And I don't know. I just think it'll be fun. So have a great holidays, everyone. I, I really can't wait to start doing this again next year. My name is Craig Barfoot, and I really thank you all for listening. Ciao.